going fission. Australia's Nuclear Technology Podcast. G'day listeners. Today's guest is Lieutenant Colonel Jasmine Dieb, who is a commanding officer of an engineering unit in the ADF. Her education includes a Bachelor's of Physics and Chemistry, a Master's in Defence and Military Studies, and a Master's in Engineering Science and Nuclear. Outside of this, she is the current President of Women in Nuclear Australia and is a member of the Nuclear Safety Committee at our Panzer. Jasmine, welcome to Going Fishing. Oh, thanks, Logan. I'm really happy to join you today. It's good to have you on board. It's good to have you here. So, um, firstly, just in, in preparation for this interview, I came across a recent interview you conducted by young Josie Curry, who I suspect may be the daughter of a certain professor of nuclear medicine. And I'd recommend all listeners go and listen to that interview. I'll add a note into the show notes, and I'll try not to tread too much of the same ground. But um, to kick off with, you're a lieutenant colonel in the Australian Army. Can you describe this rank for the civilians in the audience, myself included? Yeah, sure. So um, I'll caveat this with I've been in the military for most of my working life, so I'll do my best to try and speak in civilian terms. But I'd say um, I'm a mid-career manager. Uh, So defence is broken into two rough rank structures. There are non-commission ranks, which are our soldiers, sailors and aviators, and they um, predominantly do the hands-on stuff. They're at the cold face of a lot of activities. And then we've got our commissioned Officers. So in the Army's case, I was trained through the Royal Military College uh, and I'm predominantly part of a leadership and management uh, side of the organisation. So whilst I start out as a young officer able to be on the tools, as I go up the ranks, I'm destined to be chained behind a computer more and more. Um, yeah, so Lieutenant Colonel's around the middle for uh, commissioned officers. Okay, thank you very much. You are, or at least started, as a combat engineer. Again, for the civilians in the audience and myself included, can you describe this role? Yeah, sure. So uh, combat engineers are a trade of the Royal Australian Engineer Corps. Um, Some listeners may have heard of the term sapper. Uh, Sapper is a term we use for army engineers. And we do a whole heap of skills uh, that I would say are uh, rudimentary field engineering. So Uh, rapid construction uh, or demolitions. So in a battle space, uh, think about a rapid engineer build, uh, rapid bridge build to help tanks cross a river or um, being able to demolish bridges to prevent your enemy from using that. Uh, We also do things like minefield clearance, uh, obstacle construction. So it's really, um, I would say, rudimentary engineering there will be a whole heap of fudge factors and none of the nuance you see in I guess civil engineering or uh, mechanical engineering like that so I guess anyone who's been around natural disasters recently it was probably sappers that were cutting trees and clearing roads Um, so you might have actually met a sapper along the way if you've unfortunately been hit by a natural disaster recently. Very good yeah no I I understand what you mean I can imagine it'd be a lot of make it work and make it work now. Yeah, we have a term called sapinuity, which is sappers just <laughs> coming up with solutions to problems, and it's quite creative. Yeah, excellent. Hey, um, that actually reminds me, um, because up your way in Sydney and New South Wales, there's been an awful lot of flooding at the moment. Yeah, yeah, heaps of flooding. Um, today, yeah, can you speak to that. Yeah, so I'm out in Western Sydney, 
uh, and we have had roads closed. Um, I mean, our training area out the back at the moment is flooded, so they've cancelled a lot of field activities. Uh, yeah, so it's something we're getting used to, I guess, at the moment. I would suggest climate change might have something to do with it or, or La Nina just really doesn't like us at the moment. Understood, yeah, I, I can imagine. Now, you also have background in explosive ordnance disposal, and that sounds quite exciting. Can you elaborate on this role? Yes. So uh, one of the subsets of combat engineers is explosive ordnance disposal. Um, so part of our trade of demolitions and mine clearance. The next step up is being able to understand how to uh, dispose of foreign ordnance in the battlefield. Uh, so if anyone's seen the Hurt Locker, it's a very Hollywoodized version of explosive ordnance disposal, but it's essentially um, bomb tech, uh, being able to get rid of bombs safely uh, and dispose of them appropriately so it doesn't harm others on the battlefield. Very good. Building on Josie's interview, you completed the Nuclear Engineering Masters a few years back. Firstly, can you describe just the relationship between UNSW or uh, University of New South Wales and ADFA, which I think is the Australian Defence Force Academy? Yeah, that's right. Um, so uh, University of New South Wales has many campuses. Their UNSW Canberra campus has an affiliation with the Australian Defence Force Academy. And so it provides all the tertiary studies to young and up-and-coming officers from Army, Navy and Air Force. Uh, they also provide some postgraduate courses for members of Defence uh, civilian APS staff as well as uniformed military. Um, but it's also open to members of the public to study at UNSW Canberra. How did you end up enrolling in the Nuclear Masters? Was it supported by the ADF or did you do that off your own bat? Um, so I did that all completely off my own bat. Some oh, might call me a super nerd. Yeah. <laughs> so um, I heard about the uh, master's course that UNSW was raising at a women in nuclear conference back in around 2013, 2014. Uh, and UNSW Sydney campus was uh, putting the feelers out there to see if there was interest in people studying nuclear engineering I had always had an interest in nuclear science um, from my undergrad days. Uh, the physics side really I found fascinating. And so I wanted to know a bit more about what power production from nuclear materials looked like. So I did it as my side hustle. It was my hobby. At, by day I was doing full-time military work and then at night I'd be in the books learning how reactor systems work and um, trying to figure out um, what the safety and security implications of nuclear materials were. And a lot of my mates said I was an idiot because it would never be used in Australia. I'd have to go work overseas if I wanted to use those skills or that I was just wasting my time. But um, I like to think I'm a trendsetter. Maybe I set the trend. Maybe it's something cool now because it seems to be a lot of people that, that want to understand a bit more about nuclear, which um, I guess is pretty cheeky for me to say, but oh well. I think it's relevant. Like, you see what's going on with Germany and the invasion in Russia, and the UK has announced a, a, a big build-out, and the French have announced a big build-out, and I think the rubber has certainly hit the road in a way that a lot of people that disregarded the technology the uh, are starting to have another look at it again, look at it again the the evidence of what is technically possible has always been there but i think it's starting to build up more and more and i don't know how much more it needs to build up but 
it's certainly coming along. Even when I did my, well, I did the same nuclear masters around about the same time you did, I yes. think. Yes. I was at the um at um UNSW in Sydney, however. But uh, I remember getting into the cab just as I was organising my getting into a taxi cab just as I was organising uh, just my accommodation while I was up there, and you know discussion turned to what I was doing and I mentioned yeah, that I was doing the course taxi driver said why are you doing this you're wasting your time yeah. um, fortunately I wasn't too interested in the advice from taxi cab drivers um, <laughs> not to say that not to say there's anything wrong being a taxi cab driver but uh, but yeah maybe you don't want them deciding energy policy <laughs> anyway <laughs> interesting times interesting times it is it really is it was only more recently that you found out that you've been able to mesh your learnings of um, nuclear power with your military career. Military career. So, are you able to describe how this is starting to bear fruit? Oh, yep. Firstly, more people are talking about nuclear, which I personally think is excellent. Um, I've had a lot of friends and colleagues with a genuine interest in understanding more about nuclear come and talk to me, um, which had never really happened before. People called me nuclear jazz and that was about it. We didn't talk much more um, above that. But um, I think the current commander of the nuclear-powered submarine task force, Vice Admiral Jonathan Mead, has given a few presentations to um, forums over the past, I'd say, six months. And I think he has really said that Australia and the ADF needs to think with a nuclear mindset. And I think that's the most exciting part I find about this is as a country, we're having to have the conversation about nuclear, about what are the real ramifications of nuclear technologies? What are the safety implications? What are the safeguards implications? Things that people normally would just ignore. And I really love um, talking about safety because I think, and you'd understand coming from the nuclear engineering masters that nuclear engineers, it's all about safety and you can't have a system fail. Uh, somebody designs a car or an aeroplane, you have to design mechanisms to, if it crashes to make it safe for the people inside. But a reactor, you have to design so that it doesn't fail and you have lots of mechanisms to prevent it failing. So uh, that's, I think, the most exciting part about being able to mesh my defence life with my nuclear side hustle. We can start talking about it openly and um, have really good in well-informed conversations around what it means to think nuclear. You said you became nuclear jazz and everyone wanted to talk to you about nuclear. <laughs> Was that predominantly from people you knew on the civilian side or military side or was it both? It was both. Yeah, it was both. Um, which is also quite exciting because I think the Australian public has been quite sheltered from talking about nuclear you get the extreme, um, it's like vaccines, right? People will have extremist thoughts and then there'll be a group in the middle. But this group in the middle is now quite interested in going, hey, well, let's talk about nuclear. I don't know much about it. Talk to me about it. Um, and those are conversations I love having. Yeah, it's so politicised and it happens at, at the political level and you can see it in, in sort of the syndicated mainstream media. You look at, say, The Sun or The Australian, and they'll pitch a pro-nuclear story, and you'll look at something like The Guardian or, what's the other one, The Age, and yeah. it'll be uh, it'll be anti-nuclear. You can almost you can almost place money on it. You, oh, it's so polarising. And there's, there's a happy medium where 
people can be introduced to the information and make their own mind up. Mm. Um, yeah. oh, it exists, but I don't think a lot of mainstream media services that anymore. I think it used to. I, I, I think we've moved away from that, and I don't think that's a good thing. Uh, maybe there is a way things can be corrected, but, but it's not just in nuclear. That's just uh, in general. Yeah, it's the, in the everything. Problems. Yeah. Yeah. Hmm, Grump. <laughs> you are a co-founder of the Defence Entrepreneurs Forum Australia, or Def Oz. For those who haven't listened to Josie's interview, can you give us a description of what that is? Yeah, sure. So in um, 2016, a group of us who were led by a phenomenal powerhouse of a woman um, called Claire O'Neill wanted to create a space where junior leaders could innovate and make change at the conceptual level. So um, Army is, and I'll say defence in general, is really good at innovating where it involves material. But when it comes to conceptual change or how we change doing business, uh, it's a bit slower at adopting that. So we borrowed the idea out of the US Defence Entrepreneurs Forum and looked at a um, an idea where junior leaders could pitch their thoughts and plans um, directly to senior leaders. And senior leaders would invest uh, or provide feedback uh, with the end state being that we were making change in how we think and adapt because lessons out of military history are militaries that can think and adapt quickly at war will normally win. The ones that are riddled in due process or thinking the same way over and over again uh, really get stifled and struggle uh, to overcome their enemies. So this was an opportunity for us to think differently and um, find ways we could change. And some of the best ideas were actually coming from the bottom up, not from uh, senior leaders because they are they're covering such a wide breadth of activities. Their think time wasn't necessarily there. So um, that was the thought behind DEFOS. What you said something interesting there about how a I suppose a flexible or more adaptable force is generally more capable in 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 battle or in, yeah. uh, in conflict. Does that has that got relevance to what's going on in Russia and Ukraine? Can you speak to that, or have you got any opinion on that? Look, um, I mean, I'm watching from the sidelines like everyone else, so getting my um, feeds through mainstream media, which is hit and miss in, yep. depending on what you've got access to. Um, and, and I think that's something that uh, the Ukraine people are being able to think and adapt and come up with innovative solutions, whereas um, I guess my perspective is Russian forces are probably very strict in the way that they're executing their military power uh, and potentially that's uh, slowing them down or allowing opportunities for Ukraine to, um, I guess, overcome them. And I think the will to fight was really underestimated by the Russian forces. Um, again, I'm whilst I'm in the military, I'm not necessarily a military expert that can talk to that battle, but I guess that's my perceptions from the sidelines is that uh, Ukraine has been able to think and adapt and overcome quite quickly. Understood. Yeah, I mean, it, it looks like an absolute David and Goliath battle. I think everyone was surprised that, uh, you know, Russia included, that they weren't able to just walk in and by the end of the week could declare victory. Yeah, yeah, they really underestimated how much people are willing to fight for their country. Gotcha. 
So having look, having doing a little bit of research, there have been several Deaf Oz forums to date, and I think a lot of them are available on YouTube. Haven't had a chance to go through them all because I think some of them are like eight-hour videos. So that might be something I need to put some time aside for. But uh, how how have these been received? Obviously, you pitched the idea and uh, got the go-ahead. How have they been received now that there's been some deliver uh, some deliverables? Yeah, so um, it's been well received by most. I think there'll always be naysayers because there's people that hate change uh, <laughs> and hate being challenged. Um, but for most people, they saw it as an opportunity for some robust discussion uh, to make us better and to challenge us in a cognitive and intellectual way that um, potentially we weren't doing before. Uh, but the Chief of Army and the Commandant of the Australian Defence Academy both bought into it straight away and I think it was their support that allowed us to really thrive and get the right message on board. Um, I think we've actually seen change in the organisation where professional military education is something people want to do more of, uh, they want to be challenged and um, a few years after our first DEFOS, Chief of Army actually stole our idea. Uh, I think that's pretty flattering uh, and he ran a Futures Day which, again, was looking for people with their ideas to pitch them to him uh, and he would invest in them. So I think it had really good buy-in, yeah. Nice. Who were the two people you said initially that were really supportive? It was the, did you say, Chief of Army and...? Yeah, Chief of Army and the Commandant of the Australian Defence College, so uh, the person in charge of the Australian Defence Force Academy as well as the uh, Australian Command and Staff College um, out at Western Creek in Canberra. So it looks after the tertiary education for um, military officers from all three services. Yep. Oh, that makes sense, yeah. I suppose. Yes, here's a, here's a yeah. forum for innovation and whatnot. And, and the academic side of, or the yeah, the academic side of things said, uh, yes, uh, I'm in like Flynn. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Gotcha. That was good. <laughs> very good, very good. Uh, so can you you did mention that say um, there were some some success stories or some things that have sort of come through. Are you able to sort of speak to some of these changes or are you, or are you able to yeah. speak about those? Yeah, so um, you can see all the ideas that were pitched at DefOz on, online uh, at groundedcuriosity.com. But one I think that's good for listeners to hear is about an idea pitched by a young officer on how our maintenance and logistic functions could be streamlined and more efficient through augmented reality. And um, what resulted there was that that individual officer then had the opportunity to post to a position where he could implement change in the training system, um, also got to travel to the US to meet with uh, US counterparts to see how they're implementing augmented reality. But then I think more excitingly, got to go to Silicon Valley and meet people that are producing this software uh, and to input into that so that uh, when he rolled out the experiment at a unit um, a couple of years later, he'd already had the input to have an augmented reality system that was suitable for that use. Um, so I think that was a real exciting um, win out of DEFOS. Now, has this rolled out to Big Army? Not entirely. But it, Army's a pretty big, slow beast, but the idea that someone got invested in their idea and that it is making change, I think, was a real win from a DEFOS perspective. Just, yeah, it, it seems to speak to, because even in 
civilian life and you know, I've worked with a number of larger sort of construction companies and one of the big things that comes up often is behaviours are really difficult to change. Yes, you can come along and buy a new piece of kit or equipment and train people up to use it, but it's the behaviours that are difficult to change. And that sounds analogous, very similar to what this program or this forum you've put together has aimed to do and seems to have been doing the job fairly well. Yeah, it has. And I mean, um, our idea at the start of creating DEFOS was that in time, this should die out and just be part of regular processes. Commanders should buy into their junior leader ideas and shouldn't need a showcasing forum to be able to do that. Rather, we should remove the barriers and governance to allow people to experiment. And if it fails, that's okay. We've learnt from it and we can do something else. So um, ideally, in time, DEFOS should be a thing of the past and it should just be part of regular, run-of-the-mill military innovation. Good, fascinating, yeah. Okay, so I think, you, how many have you done? You did one in 2017, I think you did one in 2019. Is it a biannual or? So there was one in uh, 16, 17, 18, 19. Annual. Okay. Yep, and then um, we had the fun of COVID. I mean, yes. it's not a podcast <laughs> in 2022 <laughs> without mentioning COVID, yep. which really uh, stopped the idea of forums. So it's now trying to re-energise the network um, to see if there's still the demand for Adefos into the future or have we changed that mindset and are people comfortable now to pitch to their boss uh, to get buy-in? Um, I guess that's what we need to find out from our, our network. So you just got to figure out, you may already be on that cusp of having be- changed that behaviour. Do we still need to, or do you still need to continue with that, that, that initiative? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, it's normalised professional military education and robust discussion as something that can happen day to day and junior officers can challenge a senior officer on an ideal and they can do it in a respectful way that benefits everyone because, I mean, we're all on the same team at the end of the day, um, so it's about listening to everyone's ideas. So maybe we are at that point where uh, the idea of DEFOS might have proliferated across the organisation. Very good. You're currently the president of WIN Australia or Win in uh, Women in Nuclear. Uh, briefly describe this role, uh, role of the organisation here and globally. Yeah, so... Um, something I'm pretty passionate about. So Women in Nuclear Australia is one of 45 chapters of Women in Nuclear Global. So it's a not-for-profit organisation open to people of any gender uh, to predominantly support gender diversity and representation in the nuclear sector, as well as advocating for the peaceful uses of nuclear and radiological technologies. Um, For WIN Australia, our vision is really to promote diversity in nuclear through networking, advocating for women in the sector uh, and informing the nuclear debate. We're not a lobby group. We're a group of experts. We have a prob- we probably have about 260 members from right across Australia and a couple in New Zealand uh, and run a few events every year. So we focus our events on two primary groups. The first are our members, uh, and so we'll run networking or technical presentations or events centred on leadership and soft skills. Or we have events that are focused on public 
uh, and community engagement. So, for example, last year for Nuclear Science Week in October, we had a series of videos online focused on STEM story time. So really looking at young kids and getting them to think about science. Um, the year previous for National Science Week, uh, we did a webinar series that focused on five different topics around nuclear or radiation applications. You can find all these presentations on the Women in Nuclear Australia YouTube channel um, or our social media. But the community engagement stuff is the stuff I really enjoy doing because I think that's that's our value proposition. We are a group of nuclear experts. Um, yes, some of us have bias, but our idea is to present the information as clearly and as factually as possible so that people can make up their own mind about each of the technologies. You said, uh, I think you said National Science Week and Nuclear Science Week. Are they the same things or different things? Where do they come from? I'm not two, familiar with those. Two different things. So um, National Science Week uh, run by, uh, oh, this will be a good one. Um, <laughs> so it's run across Australia. It's normally around the second or third week of August and it's all kinds of science. Um, and it's lots of events to educate people on science in Australia. Nuclear Science Week is a global event. It's out of the US predominantly. Oh, is that uh, tied in with um, the uh, the environmental progress and the stand up for nuclear thing, or is that something different? That's something different. That's something different again. Together, okay. yeah, yeah. So Nuclear Science Week is about promoting safe nuclear technologies. Um, the US has used it to build their network of nuclear science around the country and um, the last couple of years we've tagged on with some uh, Australian events because I think nuclear science is pretty cool and people hopefully like learning about it. I'll have to look that up. We'll make sure I'll put something in the, sh uh, in the, the show notes regarding that. But yeah, thank yeah. you very much. WIN29 Global Annual Conference was held in Japan in May of this year. Now I understand you attended. Can you tell us a little bit about that conference? Yeah, I got to travel to Japan, which was pretty cool. Very nice. Um, yeah, every year Win Global holds uh, a conference to bring all their chapters together to discuss and share uh, ideas and talk about nuclear issues for each of our regions. Um, last year, Win Canada held a virtual conference and it was themed um, Positively Charged for Success. Now, Canada being a leading nuclear power country really spoke about how um, we could get innovation in the nuclear sector and how we can get better inclusion and gender representation in the field. Uh, Win Japan this year held a physical and virtual conference, so it was pretty cool. Um, and being 11 years since the Fukushima uh, accident, they focused the conference on evolution of decommissioning and reconstruction. So it was looking at how do we learn from the nuclear accident at Fukushima and then how do we move forward to um, continue having nuclear power production in a safe and sustainable manner? So Japan at the time is also re-looking at its energy mix. It realises it needs more power production um, from nuclear power after it shut down a heap of its reactors. So there was a lot of really interesting discussion about how do they do that and how do they continue getting the trust from the Japanese people to bring those reactors back online safely. Yeah, it was a big stink, as I remember at the time, because TEPCO, who I believe is the regulator uh, in Japan, they 
they had dropped the ball. They they hadn't discharged their responsibilities the way they should have. And and it's kind of remarkable at the same time because energy security for Japan is a big issue. It's completely different from Australia. We've got any amount of coal, gas, we've got some oil tucked away in Bass Strait and 30% of the world's known uranium or terrestrial uranium. Um, mm-hmm. Japan has never had that. It is Energy security has always been a big deal for them and it kind of surprises me. I suppose it speaks to the, the fear that nuclear can still evoke is that they've allowed their their entire fleet to be shut down for as long as it has. Can you... So, yes, can you tell us... Part of this conference, you actually had a trip to Fukushima. Can you tell us about that? Yes. So, you just mentioned TEPCO. So, the Tokyo Electric Power Company, they uh, luckily enough invited us to go see the Daiichi um, site. So... um, There are two different nuclear power plant sites in Fukushima. One's Daiichi to the north and then there's the Daini um, site to the south. So Daiichi is the one where the um, accident occurred after the earthquake and tsunami. Um, And it was fascinating to hear the company. um, They were quite humble in their approach and really apologetic and they realised that they did stuff up and potentially had not held their reactors to the safety standard required to be able to survive um, some of the natural disaster events that they were likely to have in that area. So it was quite an interesting dynamic um, to observe. So um, as we drove into Fukushima, you would see these dosimeters above uh, the road going in and out, and they were live air monitoring, um, and it was really fascinating to see that so um, for those who like a bit of radiation safety maths whilst listening to a podcast um, as we were driving into the power plant site uh, the reading was 0.692 microsieverts per hour and so I wanted to do a quick comparison the natural background here in Sydney is 0.15 microsieverts per hour so it's around four times higher than um, where I am right now so uh, according to our PANZA, on average, an Australian will get about 1.7 millisieverts per year from medical procedures, so just an X-ray, whether it's dental or regular or a CT scan. So um, a microsievert is a 1,000 times smaller than a millisievert. So as you can extract those doses, they are very small doses that you're receiving driving into the power plant site. We then went into the site itself where the staff gave us a brief on what occurred on the day of the accident, followed by um, what their plans are for decommissioning and the stages they've planned there. Uh, we then got to do a tour around the site, which was um, which was pretty cool. Uh, devastating to see the destruction, but amazing to see uh, all the work that's been done to safely decommission that site. So we got to go to a viewing platform in front of the uh, damaged reactors and there we received doses of about 75 microsieverts per hour. So for radiation workers in Australia, there's a dose limit of about 20 millisieverts per year. That's what you're allowed to receive. So if you were classified a radiation worker uh, and you could stay on that viewing platform for about 266 hours or if you work an eight-hour day, 33 days. So that's not a lot of time considering it's going to take them 
years to pull apart um, these reactors and that we weren't standing in the reactor. So you can see how hot these sources or, or the uh, melted fuel really is. So that poses a real challenge to the company on how it manages its staff to safely have them um, do some of this radiation um, exposed work to remove debris from uh, the damaged reactors. But it also means they need quite a large body of staff to safely rotate them in and out. Um, so they, um, so it was humbling to see just how much damage had been caused from the meltdown uh, at the site there. We then drove down to the seawall, which is a bit further forward from where the main reactors are. There are two reactors that were offline on the day of that earthquake and tsunami that were not damaged, but there was this huge water tank, probably about a 100,000 litre water tank uh, that was crushed like a Coke can all by the tsunami. Uh, phenomenal. I've never seen steel crushed like that. And that's something that they've decided they're going to keep in place to remind people about the sheer force of nature and that they couldn't let the ball drop when it comes to safety. They need to make sure that everything is designed to withstand the elements that they're exposed to there. Um, but this is 11 years on to their decommissioning, right? It's 11 years since the accident. They still think it's going to take another 30 plus years to decommission that site safely, um, which means they need a functioning community around them and locals that support the industry. So there's a whole heap of decimeters, not just on the roads going in and out of the reactor site, but all around the town. So after we visited the um, TEPCO site, we then drove to the um, Great East Japan Earthquake and Tsunami Memorial Museum. Really, really humbling site. But outside there, they had another dosimeter um, with the live air dose rate, and that was at 0 0.059 microsieverts per hour. So about two and a half times less than what I'm receiving right now sitting in Sydney. So they've done a really big amount of work educating the local community on what dose rates are, what's safe. They've done a heap to remove debris to try and, I guess, minimise the risk to the population or at least mentally show them that the place is clean and decontaminated um, and I guess it was all that messaging that I really took away and it really made me think a lot about how I communicate um, and how people understand risk and risk to themselves and what that means um, long term, especially in a an accident scenario. One of the criticisms often levelled at the response to the disaster was, Yes, everyone was evacuated, and okay, on the face of it, it's not a terrible idea, but they've kept them evacuated, like they've kept the place restricted for, for well, for most of the decade, uh, and a lot of the people that have left that, they've, they're not coming back, they've built new lives elsewhere. Now, you mentioned um, they need a community around that to manage the decommissioning of the site, and obviously there is still some community there, but can you speak to sort of who's there or they need to get more people in or what's what's the community life in Fukushima as you saw it in May? Very quiet. So um, I wish I wrote down more notes because I think there were about 100,000 people that were evacuated from the Fukushima township and there'd only be maybe about 10 
20,000 most that have returned, um, which is really quite sad. So driving through the streets, there are just these beautiful houses that are completely abandoned and people aren't coming back at all. Um, and I, I think part of that is the fear around the messaging and the short and long-term risks of the nuclear disaster more than the earthquake and the tsunami. And this is where I think nuclear professionals failed. Uh, and look, I wasn't there on the day. Uh, natural disasters bring out the best and the worst of humans. We get our fight or flight mode. And so I guess I'm coming with the luck of hindsight with a lot of my comments, but um, messaging that results in fear and panic actually probably has more long-term consequences on those individuals from a mental and physical health perspective than the physical risks of radiation exposure, especially on the site like we saw in Fukushima where a lot of it is contained to those reactor vessels. Um, yes, so nobody died from radiation sickness or the nuclear accident itself but many people died from being removed from their homes or being evacuated if they were in hospital and not being stable enough to move, whereas they wouldn't have been exposed to anything above and beyond a, a background radiation had they have stayed. Um, and like I said, hindsight's a beautiful thing, but this is where nuclear professionals really need to be clear in their messaging and telling the community about the risks so they can make their decisions and not telling them messaging that causes hysteria or confusion. So a lot of other messages that came out was one day they were told to evacuate to this town, then they were told, no, evacuate to this town, then this town. And that just confused people. So they went really far away. And that then puts pressure on all those other towns as well. So I think it's being really clear and open with, hey, this is where contamination is. This is what the dose rate is in this area and so on and so forth. So people can understand, hey, I'm in a zone that might be marked yellow. That means I'm getting more than an X-ray per year worth of radiation exposure. Am I going to be okay? They can make that decision um, as opposed to just exiting the entire town and creating hysteria to a point where people are now not returning, which is quite sad to see because there'd be generations of families because it's a farming community, generations of families that had been there that are now no longer returning. Um, yeah, so I think there's a lot we can learn from how Fukushima was handled and how it was messaged to the local population. I think there's a lot to be said for that because, oh, I'm pretty sure I remember, I think you can still find this video clip online somewhere, but I think it was Ian Hall-Lacey, God bless him, um, on day two of the disaster, basically said, yes, we've looked at the the details, we've looked at the releases here. The releases aren't high enough to constitute a, a radiological or a significant radiological health risk to people. That was on day two of the yeah. disaster. Um, and it just, yeah, it's it, it was obviously known about, um, but the, the powers that be decided that something else needed to be done. Uh, yeah. And, it wasn't for the best. I think we can. No. I think it's. I think we can see that now. I think that the it's the information is there that that was probably that was not handled the way it should have been handled. Yeah, and I think there's something to say about trust in our scientific communicators. And I mean, we saw it through COVID. Scientists communicating the facts weren't being trusted. So how do we build that trust with the community 
in the nuclear space so that the community listens when we explain risk. And it is about being transparent and it is about using simple language and not intimidating and using science to, I guess, bully people into doing what we think technically is right. Trusting that people are smart enough to make their own decision if they're given all the facts in an easy and digestible way. Mm. I think there was, I mean, there were... I just remember one story that's just picked up in the back of my mind during the whole COVID thing. I think it was the World Health Organization. And it was to do with the... the whether you should wear a mask or whatnot. I think the... I don't remember if it was the World Health Organization or one of the other one of the other uh, bodies, but the recommendation was that masks weren't going to be effective at stopping the spread initially, but it was a porcupine told to prevent everyone going out and buying the mask and removing that supply from where they were really needed in hospitals. And and, yeah. uh, and that, I can understand why such a lie would be told, but it speaks again to what you just said. How do we install or instill trust in our scientific institutions with you know the common person um, if they're going to engage in that kind of conduct? It does make it difficult. Yeah, yeah, it does. It's it's a really tough situation, but um, if you hope if you put the facts out there and the reasons why decisions are made, that the majority of people will understand. You will always get your outliers that will go buy every single mask or every single bit of toilet paper off the shelf. <laughs> Beat me to it. Uh, and there's a special <laughs> yeah, there's a special basket for those people. Um, yeah. But the majority of people would understand, hey, our healthcare workers actually really need these supplies to do their job. Um, I think in the nuclear space, we need to be able to say, hey, yes, there have been nuclear incidents in the past. Let's talk about it openly. Yes, spent fuel does present a nuclear waste problem, but let's talk about it openly because every form of power generation creates waste forms. We don't often talk about the other power generation waste forms we always talk about don't nuclear. talk about them no we don't at all but let's have that open conversation how much waste comes from a solar panel how much waste comes from a wind turbine how much waste comes from a nuclear reactor a coal reactor i think hydro is probably the only form of power generation that can put its hand up and say hey i'm super clean but hey i can't be built anywhere everywhere yeah. unfortunately having um, said I'm, that it was the interview i remember i had with robert parker and when you impound the dam, it does produce methane. So even oh, then, right. even then, yeah, it blew my mind at the uh, time yeah. as well. Yeah, it's to do with the breakdown of your vegetation when you when you impound the dam. Um, it releases methane, which is a really potent greenhouse gas. Yeah. So yeah. yeah, even it doesn't get away from a uh, from greenhouse gases, if you will. Yeah. So I think we just need to be talking openly about everything scientific. Mm. Um, not just pickpocketing the bits we like hearing. True that. <laughs> You're looking into ways to improve communications between professionals and communities. I mean, you've kind of spoken about that at the moment with a uh, with your trip to Fukushima. Uh, but mm -hmm. can you expand on that further and uh, what you're what you've got in the pipeline for for this? Yes, yeah, so um, I guess through a lot of the work I'm doing with Women in Nuclear Australia, uh, it is engaging the community in nuclear discussions. Um, it is providing the facts. Like I said, we're not a lobby group. Um, we'll provide the facts. We'll put experts to present their um, 
perspective on nuclear technologies and allow the public to make their own decision on it. Um, I think one of the biggest lessons I learnt out of my trip to Fukushima was that whenever I talk about nuclear to people, I need to outline the risk, what the risk means to that individual and what the risk means to our community and our environment. So if people understand the risk, they'll make their own informed decision. Um, yeah, I think that's really how we're trying to engage the community, give them all the facts, direct them to the reputable resources um, and then allow them to make up their mind. True that. Mm. Another pie that you've got a finger in is being a standing member of the Nuclear Safety Committee at ARPANSA, or the Australian Radiation Protection and Nuclear Safety Agency. Would you mind expanding on the, or elaborating on the role of this committee and how it serves the National Nuclear Regulator? Yeah, sure. So um, the Nuclear Safety Committee is a body of individuals that are external to ARPANSA, but we provide advice uh, to the CEO of Arpanza directly. So we work for her. Um, the committee has a mixture of people. So uh, we've got nuclear engineers, radiation safety experts, work health and safety experts, um, organisational behaviour experts, uh, as well as a representative from a member of the public and a representative of local council, noting Australia's only nuclear facility is the um, Opal reactor at Lucas Heights. So there's a local government rep as part of the committee there. So all our advice and recommendations are available to the public on the ARPANSA website. You can look that up, um, the Nuclear Safety Committee there. And we will um, be posed questions by the CEO of ARPANSA and we will provide what our perspective is on it and the best way forward um, for ARPANSA as the regulator to be able to either approve or change policy or um, or make any amendments to their current practices. Very good. I do remember actually going onto that website and having a look at the names. Oh, I recognise some of those names. <laughs> yeah, it's a fascinating committee. I learned so much from everyone there because we all come with completely different perspectives. Um, and I mean, sometimes our discussions are quite, quite robust um, because Bit our heated, job is perhaps. <laughs> heated, yeah. But um, it's our job to make sure that I guess all the safety policies and procedures in place are in the best interest of the Australian public. So um, it is good for us to have some of these robust discussions because if you are complacent in your nuclear safety, then that's normally when issues arise. So I think it's a um, a pretty important function as a member of the Australian public, um, I think we need to continue doing that. I see what you mean. I remember it was um, I was a, it was a, a pitching exercise I had when I was in, I did the nuclear innovation boot camp in 2017. I remember just some of the discussions we had. We'd be disagreeing on certain things, but you'd certainly have to keep your head level, calm down address each other's what you're discussing and find out exactly what it was that each other was saying because I think so many of the arguments would arise not necessarily from you disagreeing from their standpoint but you disagreeing with what you thought their standpoint was yeah yeah definitely yeah, yeah. Uh, and yeah and you and you discuss it and you hammer it out and you think oh okay that's actually not 
too divorced from what I was thinking in the first place. Yeah, yeah. A lot of the time, it's just about communication. Yeah, And true. we all communicate differently. And so it's understanding how do we communicate so that more people can understand it or how do we communicate in different ways to understand each other's perspective. For sure. Yeah. Have you been following the AUKUS agreement? Of course. Comments, I'm an insights, in points of view. Yeah, I was. this one came up and I thought, why am I not asking this question? Yeah. Well, this is World According to Jazz. No, go for uh, it. No one's, so asking it no one's asking you to represent the official view of, of, of the ADF. But I think this is a really exciting um, security initiative. I mean, it will allow Australia to have some sovereign capabilities to keep us safe. Um, I'd be lying if I didn't say I had a little dance. I didn't have a little dance when I heard about <laughs> nuclear submarines. <laughs> like uh, The people in my workplace thought it was a bit funny, but... Um, it meant that Australia was finally ready to have a serious conversation about security and about nuclear. So um, I, I think this is a really exciting opportunity for us as a nation to stand on our own feet and um, develop our own capabilities. Yeah. Do you remember at what time you saw the new? Because it took everyone by surprise. Oh, yeah. Do you remember the uh, the instance of the time when you when you when you heard the news? Yes, yeah, so I had a friend call me up at about five minutes to seven, and she said, "You need to watch AM." AM. So yep. the morning of the announcement, she said, "You need to turn on your TV right now and put the news on." Yeah, gotcha. She had a little bit of inside goss, and it blew my mind. Yeah, I no. had not been expecting that ever. <laughs> I was working yep. night shift on a um local uh, level crossing removal um, job and I just pulled up my phone like a little uh, uh, an alert came on my phone from the ABC at I think it was 2.30 in the morning and, and <laughs> holy, holy <laughs> shit <laughs> Yeah, so some pleasant surprises for those of us that work in the nuclear community <laughs> Yeah, well, it's, it's I thought it was interesting, like immediately I thought well what more do we need? Like we've got the research reactor for medical isotopes and also just nuclear science in general. I think it's amazing that ANSTO exists as its own thing separate from CSIRO. Um, yeah. Also you've got, now that we've also got nuclear submarines, so it's it's okay to have medical radioisotopes, radio, uh, yeah, radiation medicine. It's okay to have it, we've decided it's okay to have nuclear reactors to defend our nation why are we still not having this technology to power our nation? Why oh, have we still steps, got Logan, yeah. baby steps. <laughs> but and I know it's it was all part of the deal with um Scott Morrison, then PM and Albanese and the agreement was that this would not be used as a political tool to push that agenda of legalizing nuclear power. But how can anyone look at this and think it's not going to influence the discussion? Well, I think it's just opening the door for the discussion to occur um, because we never would have been having these discussions had the AUKUS agreement not been raised because a lot of people would just shut down straight away and say, yeah, we're not talking about nuclear, it'll never happen. I don't um, know about that because in 2015 really? we had the Royal Commission and yeah. then in 2019 we had the Federal um, Inquiry, which the government of the day still decided, well, we're not going to do anything about it. And we also had the New South Wales one and the Victorian one. So the discussion has certainly been there. Yeah, but it's... Um, but, it yeah, hasn't I think been AUKUS, a public yeah. discussion. Sorry? 
it hasn't been a public discussion. That's the sad part. The well, even so, even the um, the inquiries still invite comment from the public. That's the purpose of the um, of or part of the the procedure of those commissions. So I think the discussion will still be there. Having said that, the announcement of AUKUS is a game changer, I think. But I think the discussion was still kind of there to some degree. Yeah, I I think it just hadn't had the buy-in or appetite from government to legitimately have the decent conversation. I don't know, maybe that's Mm. the pessimist in me. And I'm not normally a pessimist, but... um, Well, there are also two different technologies we're talking about. I mean... All yeah. those commissions, raw commissions and the inquiries are all about civilian nuclear power and obviously this is about military nuclear power on a submarine. Um, yeah. So they're yeah. different but related, I think, for sure. Both require Australia to have an industry that understands nuclear. So um, I think that alone is pretty exciting for us as a country. And that's definitely true, yeah. I, I was, yeah. There are... Ha- having briefly followed uh, myself being an outsider there are industries looking at it thinking yeah we're going to have to upskill these capabilities any capability that upskills in terms of building submarine reactors there's going to be plenty of plenty of bleed over plenty of overlap in that venn diagram for building up a a civilian nuclear reactor capability yeah so yes anything else you'd like to fit or anything else you'd like to comment on before we finish up I guess um, I've mentioned a few times people being able to do their own research on nuclear things from reputable sources. Um, I guess if people want to find out more, we have uh, submissions we provided to the Federal New South Wales and Victorian Parliament up on our website. Um, You can also check out the Arpanza and Ansto websites. They provide um, detailed factual evidence-based bits of information on nuclear science and radiation technologies. Um, Also, if you're interested in Women in Nuclear Australia uh, and you work in the field, you can join. Um, Just go to our website, uh, winaustralia.org, and check us out on social media. Otherwise, um, thank you so much, Logan, for the opportunity to, to chat about Lots of different things today. Oh, no, it's been great, Jess. Thank you very much for making the time. I know, I know from trying to chase many guests on this, it's often a case of, oh, yes, um, well, I'd love to come on your podcast, but I have a professional career that takes a <laughs> lot of time and, you know, a life and a family. And, um, yeah, so, no, I, I, I thank you very much for making the time to, uh, to come and appear on Going Fishing. Awesome. Thanks. Catch you later. See ya. Thanks again to Lieutenant Colonel Jasmine Deeb for making her time available to appear on Going Fishing. As mentioned previously, Josie Curry's interview with Jasmine is available as well, and I recommend you all go and chase it up. The link is in the show notes, as are links to Women in Nuclear Australia, the Apanta Nuclear Safety Committee, Nuclear Science Week, and Australia's National Science Week. Until next interview, thank you very much, and we'll catch you later.